This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Hi, I'm Simon Breakspear and the reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. We'll be reading from chapter 10, verses 35 to 45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, we are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers, lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The second Bible reading is from Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Paul said, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Let us pray. <clears throat> Give us grace, O Lord, not only to hear your word with our ears, but also to receive it into our hearts and to show it forth in our lives the glory of your great name. Amen. Well, last week, the first part of Philippians chapter 2 challenged us to be humble. And we find humility so compelling. That's why it's so central to the many of the stories that have really endured. My daughter Beatrix is reading The Lord of the Rings at the moment, and she's really, really enjoying it. But it does make you wonder, why, does a nine, why is a nine-year-old girl interested in reading a 70-year-old book written by an old Englishman? Well, one of the reasons is that humility, one of the central themes of the book, 
is so attractive that the key to overcoming the evil of Sauron and the ring is not about the strength and valor of men, nor is it about the industry and hard work of the dwarves, nor is it about the wisdom and skill of the elves. The way to life is found in a humble and unassuming creature, a hobbit from the backwoods of the empires. And so what's not to love about that as a nine-year-old girl? And we all love stories like this because they tap into our feelings about what is most good and beautiful. On the other hand, living, living like this, with humility like this, is really hard. Sure, it can be easy to be self-deprecating, and we all have our insecurities, but to be genuinely humble and then to serve others is a, and have a real concern and, for others in a self-giving way is very difficult. So how do we pursue humility? Well, according to today's passage, Jesus Christ is the answer. To live with humility, we need to see Christ and live like him. Philippians 2 gives us some of the, <clears throat> some of the richest seams of deep poetry and theology in the whole Bible. It stands alone as a creed that captures some of the most profound aspects of who Jesus Christ is, and it sets out, and ex- sets out for us the ideal for how our lives ought to be in Christ. And so Paul begins in verse 5, after he tells the Philippians to be humble, he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. If you want to be humble, you need to see Jesus Christ. And there are two aspects to seeing Jesus Christ today. <clears throat> and the first is, is that Christ's humiliation sets you an example. Christ's humiliation sets you an example. And it begins in verse 6 with almost a throwaway line. Before he was the man Jesus Christ, he was in the form of God. Do you ever think about what Jesus was like before he was the man Jesus Christ? Well, he was always, going back into eternity past, the Son of God, clothed with all the glory and majesty and honor that only God is. But then he does something that you might never expect of God. He humbled himself in a whole array of ways. In verse 6, he didn't exploit his divine power. As the divine son of God, the divinity was right there, ready for him to take up and wield But he didn't use it. When you have power, it's so easy just to want to use it to its full extent to get every benefit that you can, like getting free parking or the best seats if you've got the right leverage. But Jesus Christ, he didn't do that. Instead, in verse 7, he emptied himself when he became a human. That language there is so strong. He emptied himself. Now, it's not that he gave up his divine qualities. He remained fully God, even as he was fully man. It's that he concealed his glory, gave up his honor. 
poured himself out for others and used what power he had to serve. Jesus emptied of himself for us. And again in verse 7, he did this by taking the form of a slave. As the Lord, he had every right to his glories, but he didn't use them for his self-display or self-advancement. The Lord became slave. No special advantages or rights or privileges. He came to deny himself and to serve. But even as a slave-like human, in verse 8, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Origen, the third century theologian, called it an utterly vile death. A death reserved for slaves and violent criminals that satisfied a lust for revenge and sadistic cruelty as the pathetic victim was tortured to death. Crucifixion is the lowest, most shameful way to die. This truly was the Lord who became a slave for us. So what does Christ's humility and humiliation have to do with our humility? Well, first it means that when you live humbly, you live like God. When you live humbly, you live like God. Verse 6 says that, says, though he was in the form of God, he emptied himself. But many commentators agree that that's better translated as, not as though he was God, but because he was God, he emptied himself. And the difference there is that when you look at the life of Christ, you see into the very inner life of God. It's like a curtain has been pulled back to show you what God is really like. And the answer is, if you've ever wondered, humble. The Lord who became a servant is exactly what God is like. Now this means that when God asks you to live humbly, he doesn't tell you just to do it because it's your duty, because he wills it. He calls you to live As he lives. Living as a servant means living the very life and character of God. Second, this means that the fundamental shape of the Christian life is humility and service. Living as a Christian means humility that thinks less of ourselves and service that gives ourselves ourselves to others. Now, that first humble step of of living and thinking of ourselves less is really tricky. Uh, The cross-cultural psychologist Michelle Gelfand describes American culture, and I think it's true of Australia too, as not just individualistic, but vertically individualistic, in the sense that it is deeply competitive in its individualism. Gelfin says, we're trained from a very early age not just to be independent, but to be better 
How much of your life operates out of competition? To be better than the other guy or better than everyone else? What is it that drives? Is this something that drives you, at least in part? What drives your career? How do you steer your kids' lives so they are better and trained to always seek to be better than the people around them? I've got to admit, competition is an issue for me. It's one of the reasons why I don't join in games at youth group. I tend to hurt myself or end up hurting somebody else. But that's a reflection of some deep competitiveness and competition within myself. I want to be better. But as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to hear that a life of competition is antithetical to Jesus' self-giving humility and service. A real service where we're giving, giving our lives for others is really hard too. It means living for others in humbling ways for their sakes and not for our own recognition. And as Christians, this needs to permeate every part of our lives. As I prepared this week, I've been personally challenged uh, living as a husband and father by asking, how, how do I live as a husband and father by serving and as a son by serving? <clears throat> do I live to serve my own interests and pursuits or Naomi's? Do I give myself for the sake of my kids or do I cultivate my own self? And do I give myself for my parents as they get older and as in the future, they're not that old yet, but as they get older, do I seek to serve them? <clears throat> and it permeates every part of how we think about church life too. Have you noticed that around here, we don't tend to talk about volunteering We talk about serving. As Christ's people, we don't graciously condescend and gift our precious time to God and to other people. We serve humbly as servants, as Christ did, with no role too small, too menial, and not for our own recognition and performance. It applies to our work too. And we talk about being transformed by grace to love one another, serve the city and share Christ. As we think about serving the city, we talk about service. Now, this is a really distinctive way that we as Christians think about our work. We don't work for uh, the sake of my career or for the impact that I might make. We don't work for good money and security, for a good reputation or out of an insecurity that drives perfectionism and performance, though all those things, of course, shape different parts of our lives and how we work. But the fundamental drive for us in our working life should be to serve people, to love and serve people in the way that we do our work the way that we use our minds and our skills and our hands. Last week, Michael quoted the social commentator Yuval Levin, 
who talked about our lives as a place where we perform to be seen rather than an opportunity to be formed. As disciples of our humiliated Lord, performance like this should not be how we approach home, church life, or our work. Rather, humble service. Now, I want to be clear here as I talk about humility and service. I, I don't mean destroying yourself or allowing yourself to be destroyed. Or staying in a home or church or work situation where you're being controlled or coerced or abused. If you're crashing and burning, you need to let yourself be served by others. If you're in danger, you should remove yourself if you can. Jesus' example really in the end is, over, is only ever an analogy. He is the Lord of the world who gave his life on a cross to save the world. You and me, we're not saviors. He gave himself to save and serve you. You are not the saviour. So don't let yourself, don't think that you have to let yourself be destroyed. Okay, so that's Jesus' example for us, to live like him with humility and service. But I found, and I found that this week actually as I was preparing this, that... The problem with an example like this is that it can easily squash us. We can look at Jesus' example of his extraordinary humility in service and just be overwhelmed by it. This standard that he sets is just so high. Is it even and it's like, so it makes it like it's even harder to live humbly. But the second half of this passage helps us out here because it moves from Jesus' humiliation to Jesus' exaltation. And when we look at his exaltation, we have a secure place from which we can live humbly. So his exaltation gives us a a secure place. And it begins in verse 9. After Christ emptied and humbled himself to the point of death, God the Father turned the tables and exalted him highly. He raised him from the dead after three days. And after another 40 days, Jesus ascended into heaven. Now, this language here, it's not about drawing a map of the universe with heaven up there and earth here and and hell down below. And when I teach kids, I get this question all the time. You know, where's Jesus now? Where's heaven? Like, up there, why can't we see him? Heaven's not up there. It's a completely different place. It's with God. And so when Jesus is raised up and exalted like this, this is a value judgment. A value judgment. When he ascended, it's his vindication and approval. Christ humiliated himself and in return, God the Father exalted him. He said, this one who was humiliated is actually the Lord who deserves all praise and glory and worship. And that's why it says that he gave him the name that is above every name. The name in the Old Testament was the name of the true God, Yahweh, the Lord. And this is who Jesus is. The Lord, 
That's who he was and that's who he became. As theologian Karl Barth put it, the Lord who became servant is the servant who became Lord. And because he is the Lord, in verse 10, every knee will bend for him. Everyone and everything in the world will honour him. Now, first century Jewish people stood to pray. But when they knelt, that was because things were urgent. They were in urgent need or they were overcome with awe. Everyone and everything in heaven and on earth and under the earth All Israel, all nations, all spiritual powers, even the creation itself will will bow to him. And verse 11, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. At the end of the world, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Acknowledge his power and rule. Now there is something a little chilling here because... Many will happily bow their knee and confess that he is Lord, but there will be many who have no choice but to reluctantly admit that he is Lord. The humiliated Christ is now an exalted Christ, and that gives us a secure place from which to live in two ways. And the first is that he shows us where to start by bowing our knee to him. Finding the strength to serve humbly is really hard, but not when you start here. When you begin every day, literally bowing the knee, bowing or at least bowing your knee or at least bowing your head in prayer, and verbally acknowledging that He is Lord and not you. Now this sets us off in the right direction with the right perspective. That he is Lord and not us. And because of his grace and mercy, it means that when we come to him each day, having failed to live humbly and serve, that he accepts us, he forgives us, he renews you and strengthens you, empowers you to, to live with this humility each day. Even Jesus did this. When he often stole away quietly to be with and to pray to his father. And even his own exaltation, did you notice this? Right at the end, is to the glory of the father. His own humility began and ended with seeking the glory of his father. And so we begin with humility by bowing our knee to Christ as he does to his father. For the right posture in life and for renewal and strength. And the second way that Jesus' exaltation gives us a secure place to live humbly is that it's a taste of the glory that you will experience too. Jesus was exalted to the highest place, and if you are his follower, you will be too. Philippians, a little bit later in Philippians, in Philippians 3.21, it says... That he, that is God, will transform the body of our humiliation, your body of humiliation, will be transformed, that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. Do you sometimes feel like you will, if you give of yourself, that you'll give yourself for nothing, for no reason, 
for no return. That if you humbly serve, that you'll miss out. You won't build the career you've always wanted. You won't get the recognition that you deserve. Well, the promise is here that however you spend yourself for Christ and others, you will experience the very glory that Jesus Christ has. He has gone ahead of you and that's where he's taking you. Like him, you will be vindicated and approved. Now, it's not that he gives us this as a reward, like like your virtuous humility uh, makes you earn a place in glory. He gives it to us because we belong with Christ. Because when you trust him, you are a heavenly citizen by God's grace. And that is where he is taking you. And it's this secure place from which you can empty yourself in humility and service to God and others. Now imagine for a minute what it would be like if your life, if our life as a church was marked by this kind of humility and service. If we were a church all about the humble service of each other and and of God and the world. A church so welcoming and so generous, and so open to correction and willingness to change, so repentant and non-anxious, so loving and so self-giving. I'm tempted to say that, you know, wouldn't that be so winsome and attractive and wouldn't that really make an impact? But that's not quite it, is it? Instead, wouldn't that Bring glory to God our Father. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources, and find more information about the community of St. Mark's.